This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. For those of us with print disabilities, they provide windows onto the world that we might never otherwise be able to access. For others, they're a convenient way of cramming more reading into our increasingly busy lives, or distracting the kids on a long car journey. Audiobooks, or should that be talking books, have become a way of life for a significant proportion of book lovers and continue to be the fastest area of growth in publishing. But there's always been an element of snobbery emanating from print purists as to whether listening to a book is really the same as reading it. And it was this question that prompted Professor of Modern Literature Matthew Rubery to investigate the subject further. In The Untold Story of the Talking Book, he not only explores the origins of an area of publishing that grew from the needs of blind people, but also examines the relationship between the written and spoken word. In this, the second episode of a two-part special edition of My Life in Books, he and I will discuss the technological innovations that have made talking books possible and the stigma that continues to haunt them. But first, let's remind ourselves of the audiobook version of The Untold Story of The Talking Book, which is narrated by Jim Dennison. This project began when a friend mentioned reading a book, then suddenly backtracked to confess that he had not actually read the book, he had listened to it. Listening to books is one of the few forms of reading for which people apologize. His apology differed so much from the usual way of discussing books as a personal achievement and sign of distinction that I felt compelled to look into the roots of this shame. My investigation led me to a sector of the publishing world that I had hardly noticed, despite a lifelong interest in books. Soon, I discovered that audiobooks have a longer history than is generally thought, one extending all the way back to Edison's recitation of Mary Had a Little Lamb on a sheet of tinfoil. Hence, my account follows the tradition from phonographic books made on wax cylinders to talking books made for blinded soldiers returning from the First World War, and, much later, the commercial audiobooks heard on car stereos and headphones today. Matthew Rubry, welcome back to My Life in Books. Thank you. Well, let's start side two of this recording, and I think we should go back and explore the technology of the talking book. Back in 1877, we were talking about the phonograph, Edison's tinfoil recording machine, and that could only record a very small amount. That's right. The first phonographs could only record a couple minutes at a time at the most. and I mean, that kind of lasted for uh, several decades. So the early phonograph demonstrations where you would record a bit of speech onto a sheet of tinfoil you could only record I mean, short forms of speech. So it might just be like a nursery rhyme or something like that. And the technology was very tricky to use as well. So you'd basically record these uh, tinfoil cylinders by um, turning the cylinder with your hand um, and rotating it while you spoke into the funnel. But once you sort of took the tinfoil off that cylinder, it was very difficult to get it back on and replay it. And then when you did replay it, you had to play it at the right speed or it would sort of sound like a, a Daffy Duck type voice. So the the original technology wasn't that practical. And then we moved on to wax cylinders at some point and eventually get to uh, records a decade or so later. But it's important to remember that this did not stop Edison's optimism. He was already predicting in 1888 that you could record an entire Dickens novel like Nicholas Nickleby, which is a, a really fat novel. He said you could record that in wax cylinders. It was totally um, impractical because it would have taken hundreds of those wax cylinders to do, and you would have to be changing them all the time on the machine. But the ambition was there. He was nothing if not ambitious. As you say, <laughs> he, he had plans for a phonograph publishing house. He said he already had a 100 pre-orders, and uh, he saw it right from the very beginning 
as a form of publishing that would be big. And he wasn't wrong. No, I mean, he, he, he did envision the early phonographs being used for business purposes. I mean, he wanted to make money off his machine, which is uh, understandable. So he saw it being used as a dictation device by businesses. But he did say, oh, it could also do other things like um, record music as we know it would go on to do, or record letters that you could send to the post to friends and family, or use it to record books, to read aloud to um, either people with disabilities or people in the hospital, or just people who would prefer to listen to books. And I think one prediction he made that that was spot on again was he identified that there was sometimes greater pleasure to be had in listening to a very skilled reader. So he's kind of anticipating, I think, the rise of celebrity narrators uh, later in the next century. But one of his ambitions was to have what he called a library of voices that would sort of capture all these famous voices on, um, on these records. And he did. I mean, we do have Edison's team to thank for uh, recording some uh, writers and um, celebrities from the 19th century that we would not have any trace of their voices if it was not for his phonograph. So I'm thinking poets like uh, Alfred Tennyson and Robert Browning recorded their poems in 1890, and we can still listen to those poems being played today. Whilst Edison saw the general use, in one of his very early adverts for the phonograph, he did have a wife with failing eyesight and a husband who was tired having come back from work, and they were extolling the virtues of the phonograph. And this was picked up by the two great heroes of your untold story of the talking book, the men we discussed in episode one, Captain Ian Fraser in the UK and Robert Irwin of the American Foundation for the Blind. And as early as 1919, just a couple of years after he'd been blinded, Ian Fraser was already talking to gramophone companies about how record length could be lengthened to be able to record meaningful amounts of literature onto it. Yeah, Robert Irwin and Ian Fraser both said they could never hear a record um, without thinking, wouldn't it be great if you could listen to an entire novel on that record? Um, so I, as we mentioned, there were, you could just record a couple minutes on these records um, in the early 20th century. Uh, and the records being used at the time are 78 revolutions per minute records, um, 78 RPMs. Uh, and the big technological breakthrough is to be able to play those records at slower speeds. So in the U.S., they're able to slow the records down to 33 and a third RPM. Um, and it's even slower at 24 RPM in the U.K. And what this enabled um, the recorders to do is to extend that playing time from two to three minutes to 15 to 25 minutes per side which suddenly meant you could record uh, an average-sized novel, let's say, on um, between 10 and 20 discs. So that was suddenly a realistic goal rather than, you know, as Edison tried to uh, imagine with the Dickens novel, trying to do it on hundreds of these discs. Ian Fraser certainly investigated loads of different technologies, including something really quite outlandish called the octophone in his search for talking book recording technology. Yeah, I mean, we tend to look back and think audiobooks were just inevitable. It just seems very obvious to us in retrospect that uh, books would eventually be recorded. But it did not seem so at the time when people uh, tried out lots of different technologies and film was thought to be the, the, the future of uh, recorded books, not discs. But it turned out that film players were just too expensive to install in people's houses. And whereas the early talking book players came in three models, uh, one that could be played while being plugged into the mains, but one that could be played if you didn't have electricity as well. And then there was a third model that could be played using headphones. But that wouldn't work with film, and you had to be able to plug in the machine for it to work. So expense really was the deciding factor, rather than records being people's first choice. It was just the most practical uh, choice in the end. I mean, you mentioned that uh, really interesting alternative that was proposed, the optophone. And that's a fascinating device because it basically looks like uh, a book scanner where you lay a book on top of a screen and then a beam of light goes across it. And what that scanner was doing was basically it would play musical tones based on the shape of the letters on the page. So depending on the sounds you heard in your head, theoretically, you could kind of tell what the shape that sound was referring to was and therefore kind of figure out what the letters were on the page. This was a really interesting device by the standards of the time. 
but also just proved ridiculously difficult to use in practice. So I think only two or three people ever could use it to read at all. And even those people read at a very slow rate, uh, just because it was so difficult to kind of translate those sounds back into language. Now, the fact that in the US they chose 33 and a third RPM 12-inch records and in the UK, as you say, they chose a different 12-inch 24 RPM, I think you said, shellac records, clearly made the two working together to provide a wider library of talking books to blind people more difficult. However, they did work together, and certainly in the case of the National Institute for the Blind in the UK, they were shipping these records all over what was then the British Empire, out to Canada and South Africa and Australia and New Zealand. And that's actually where you have found some of the records that fill in the gaps in the history. So both organizations in both countries agreed very early on to cooperate, just because for the first few years of the talking book libraries, their collections were so small, just because it would uh, be expensive and time-consuming to um, build up collections. Uh, so both agencies agree to swap recordings back and forth to, to bulk up their libraries. But of course, as you say, there are compatibility issues here because they're playing at slightly different speeds. So adapters were required. It was a bit of a technological fiddle to make them work. The other incompatibility, though, was a sort of more amusing one, and that was just the accents in which books were read. Uh, so there were some American recordings of British titles that could could sound sort of grating when listened to by a British person. I mean, they didn't want to hear Americans imitating British accents and vice versa. American people complained about not being able to understand the British accents. So there's compatibility both in a, a technological and a cultural sense. But the results of these sort of books going uh, all over the place is that even though most of these early records are lost or they've been destroyed because they were so fragile, private collectors have kind of turned up some of these early recordings. So for instance, um, in Britain, we have been able to find an early copy of you know, one of the first titles recorded over here, Joseph Conrad's Typhoon. We still haven't found a recording of Agatha Christie's The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, though. So if anyone listening to this program has an attic full of old records or anything, please let us know if you come across that title. And some have actually turned up in Canada, haven't they? Some of the early recordings. Yeah, that's where we uh, were able to find a copy of the Joseph Conrad Typhoon. There's a collector there. Um, I, I got in touch with him randomly. I've been speaking to collectors for, for years, just trying to find uh, old copies. And I think eventually he heard me on a radio program or um, I got in touch with him through a, a chat group or something like that. But yeah, he had some early recordings. Um, he was interested in it from a technological point of view because 24 RPM records are quite rare. Um, and I think he was just interested in records of different play speeds. So he was interested in it from that angle, whereas I was, I was obviously interested in it from a cultural heritage point of view. Um, and he quite generously, as I found with many collectors, once he learned of the significance of these recordings, agreed to donate it to um, the British Library, in this case, for uh, safekeeping. Now, as you touched upon, there were debates over how narrators read these books. And right from the very beginning, there was a lot of discussion over whether narrators should perform straight readings or whether they should act. And I suppose this really feeds into that whole debate of whether those of us who are listening to talking books are passive or active. Can you explain exactly what Robert Irwin particularly meant by straight reading? I think this is the great debate in all of audiobook history is how to read uh, a talking book. Um, should you read it straight? which, as you said, meant kind of in a neutral manner where you're not performing the voices or doing the voices in different accents. You're trying to read it with minimal intonation and emphasis in order to kind of approximate the printed book as closely as possible and the experience of reading a printed book where the reader of the printed book is going to do most of the work of imagining what those words sound like for themselves. So that was kind of the objective of straight reading versus performative reading which was associated much more with commercial recordings. Um, so, so audio publishers who wanted to sell as many records as possible 
tended to prefer hiring actors who would read these books in as, in as entertaining a way as possible. And this might include everything from doing the voices in an overtop way, including a full cast where people are playing the roles of different characters, adding sound effects and things like that. So there is kind of a general split here between the talking book programs for blind people um, beginning in the 1930s, which almost exclusively wanted to make the experience of reading as close to print as possible. So did advocate straight reading or neutral reading so that listening to books would be treated as equivalent to um, reading a book in print. It was very important to blind readers that they not be treated as kind of uh, second-class citizens when it came to reading. Whereas once you have the start of the commercial audiobook industry from the 1950s, then suddenly publishers are much more open to experimenting with different um, types of recordings. And certainly, I remember from some of the first audiobooks I was listening to in the 1980s, there was a real difference between the ones that had come from the RNIB, where you would have footnotes included and descriptions of any illustrations or tables read out, which you would never get in a commercial audiobook. And, and that's still a difference between an audiobook and a talking book. Yeah, so there was a lot of effort put into making the sound recording as close to the printed book as possible. And that meant, like you say, kind of reading everything. Um, so again, replicating the printed book in a sonic format. So that would be, you know, you read the acknowledgments note at the beginning or copyright mm. notices, things like that. The boring bits of a book that readers might very well skip if they were reading it in print. But again, you wanted the blind reader to have the completely same text presented to them as other people were getting. Um, there is a lot of experimentation at this time, too, though, uh, because you know this is the early days of the audiobook industry. So uh, there's a lot of trial and error going on to figure out what works and what doesn't. So, for instance, I think plays were often just read straight. And I mean, just as if it was a, a single narrator reading a play as if it was a novel, that never went down very well. So I think the, the policy relaxed, at least when it came to drama. There, there were more readers brought in. And there was more of a performative element. And even as early as 1934, there was a recording of A Christmas Carol with church bells in the background, I believe. Yeah. So, uh, you know, initially, again, you did have uh, a sense that you didn't necessarily have to just reproduce the printed book, but you could also use the audio format to do things that print couldn't do. And, you know, playing music is a, a great example of that. Uh, I think the people making these early reading lists pulled back from that initially, just because, as we mentioned, there were just anxieties about what counted as real reading. And that was kind of the priority at the time. But you can see a glimpse towards the future of audiobook recordings, where there is going to be lots more experimentation, where um, publishers will say, you know, why not add music and try to do everything we can to make the most of the sonic format, instead of just trying to be as faithful as possible to the printed book. Now, I was rather amused to read Robert Irwin's requirements for a good narrator as having accuracy and stamina, because having worked in the talking book studios in London, I can tell you that is exactly what they're still looking for about 100 years later. And it was tough work back then. I mean, remember, it was a lot more difficult to edit out mistakes in the early days. I mean, in the early days of recording, you had to fill the 15 to 20 minutes of a record in a single take. I mean, you, if you made mistakes, you had to start all over. So obviously, the technology improves throughout the 20th century, and that um, opens up a lot of possibilities and makes it a lot easier to record books. But one thing I really admired about the talking book programs is because they weren't commercial operations, they just devoted a lot of time to doing these recordings right. And what that often meant was a lot of editing before the recording process even started. So as part of my research, I've seen a lot of these reports written for the narrators that would just discuss every aspect of the book from a sonic perspective, such as how do you pronounce the various character names? What are the foreign words in here in the text and how would they be pronounced? What type of uh, accents are used throughout the book? So there is just a huge amount of research that goes into making these recordings as accurate as possible. The commercial audiobook industry that follows tries to do that, but it's just very time consuming and therefore expensive. Uh, so if you are a narrator who's getting paid by the recorded hour, you're going to put as little time uh, as possible into prep. And that's, I think, something that's been lost. So when I go back and hear a lot of these recordings, um, they are superb from that perspective and that uh, all this time has been spent on doing the recording right. 
Another guideline was that they should be read with sympathy and restraint. And one of the things that comes through is that there was some attempt to match the narrator to the text that he or she was reading. But certainly for the first few decades, there were a lot more male narrators than female narrators, partly because of the recording technology that, that was being used. Yeah. So this just it just stands out as just a glaring problem with a lot of these early recordings. I mentioned how much time goes into editing and researching them, and that leads to very high-quality recordings. But there was just little thought given to matching up narrative books in the early days of the program in a way that would be totally unthinkable today. So for instance, you might have a middle-aged man reading a recording of Jane Eyre, for instance, and it just sounds sort of grating. And it, you know, you, you sort of look back and wonder, it can't have been that tough to find a woman to do this. Um, but you're right, there was a technological issue that women's voices did not record as well as men's voices because of the pitch. And I think there was partly just an element of prejudice too, but for whatever reason, women's voices were perceived as less easy to listen to in the early days of these programs. So gradually, over the next several decades, you get more awareness of the need to cast narrators to match up subject matter. And I, so I think this happens in terms of gender, as we mentioned with a text like Jane Eyre, but also in terms of race, in terms of ethnicity, in terms of nationality. So some of these early recordings, to me, just sound really offensive because there's a sort of stereotyping effect going on where, let's say, if a, a, a white narrator reads uh, a black person's speech, they might put on a very exaggerated accent. Or if a straight man is imitating a gay character, they might do something like a lisp to make that character sound gay, whatever that means. Uh, but you just hear a lot of that, uh, that that makes some of these records just unlistenable today. Narrators have always been drawn from actors or radio actors. But something that really surprised me was how other celebrities, celebrity authors such as W. Somerset Maugham and Thomas Mann narrated their own books and, and got quite a lot of fan mail for it. And this was from very early on in the history of talking books. We, we tend to think of these programs as almost like a, a consolation, that uh, blind people were given talking books because they weren't able to read in any other ways. But I think these celebrity narrators offer us a glimpse that uh, blind people were often getting access to celebrity readings that were not available to sighted people. So a lot of well-known public figures agreed to read for blind people on the condition that you know, no, no one else would hear these recordings. Some of these recordings are available today, I mean, through archives and stuff. So um, I've heard, let's say, Thomas Mann's recordings, uh, for instance. And I think in one case, he wrote like a special preface for uh, one of the talking books he was recording that, that was not available in print. So just from a, the perspective of a literary historian, this is fascinating to sort of have access to different dimensions of these um, well-known people's careers. So yeah, you, you had everything from sort of famous authors who were lending their voices to these programs to really talented narrators who they were just skilled actors in their own right. I mean, this is kind of before the voice actor was a sustainable career, but they were starting that industry because they had a real talent for it. And of course, it was a celebrity poet, Dylan Thomas, whose recording of one of his poems really changed the game as far as audiobooks were concerned and helped one of the first big commercial audiobook companies, Cadman. But that almost came about by accident. Yeah, the, I mean, the story of how Cadman came into existence uh, is a fascinating one. So before the 1950s, you have a, a, a flourishing talking book library in both the North America and in Britain. But those recordings are only available to blind people. As we mentioned, because of the copyrights, these records could not be listened to by sighted people or otherwise these blindness organizations would lose their permission. It is not till the 1950s that you sort of get the beginnings of a successful commercial audiobook industry. You do have sort of one-off recordings here and there, but they're just very sort of marginal productions. Cadman, though, changes all that because they sort of bring recorded literature or spoken word recordings to a mass market for the first time. So it is in 1952 that 
two women who just graduated from university. So Barbara Holdridge and Marion Roney. And they wanted to start a business of making spoken word recordings and weren't exactly sure what to start with. Um, they just happened to go to a poetry recording in New York City where Dylan Thomas was reading his poetry aloud. And he was kind of like a rock star at this time for his readings. That They were just hugely popular. and He was a, a really sort of electrifying reader aloud. And they heard him, said, he's who we want. They persuaded him to come to their studio uh, later that week and record some of his poetry for them. Um, he did this. He recorded the poetry, but it turned out it only filled up one side. So they still had another side left. So he said, oh, I've got this story that I published a few weeks ago called A Child's Christmas in Wales. How about I read that? And they said, sure. Um, so it was sort of started as filler, but that has turned into one of the most popular spoken word recordings of literature ever made. I still know people that um, listen to that recording every Christmas. And when I bring up its title, um, these people often get a bit uh, emotional and just think about their fond memories of hearing this um, celebrating Christmas and where this, this story would be on the radio. So this was a, a great choice of text in the sense that not only was it something that you know, worked in terms of filling the records out, but it's, it's still something we listen to today. Of course, however, there have always been print purists who have predicted the death knell for the printed book at the hands of the recorded work. And with Cadman's success came the charge, well, these are only bottled books. And this is a debate that has dogged talking and audiobooks since the very start and it's something that we will come on to discuss after this break. Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-122-1111. Welcome back to My Life in Books and episode two of the untold story of the Talking Books special with Professor Matthew Rubri. Matt, we were talking about that hoary old chestnut of a debate. Is listening to a book really the same as reading it? And as I said right at the very beginning, 1877, People are predicting the death knell of the printed book. It's a debate that still goes on today. And, well, you started this book because a friend of yours was apologetic for listening to rather than reading a book. Well, I, I remember that moment vividly because uh, this was a friend who you know, knew I was a big reader and I think sort of felt sheepish that, that he never read. So he's very excited to share the news with me that he'd read a book. And so I was fascinated just to, to see him backtrack and then sort of apologize for reading it in the wrong way by, by using his ears instead of his eyes. Whereas I was just delighted he had, had contact with a book in any way. Uh, but I did start thinking about that curious form of shame that audiobook readers seem to have still to this day in, in, in some quarters. Um, and it fascinates me because almost every other form of reading is, is seen as a kind of uh, a form of distinction where people kind of are, are proud of being readers and you know want to display books on their shelves and other people to know that they are a book reader, but not with audiobook uh, readers, because there is that sense that you are taking a shortcut. Uh, and sometimes people have been accused of cheating by listening to a book instead of doing the, the hard work of reading it the, the hard way, I guess. So this is a debate that sort of goes back and forth with renewed intensity at, at various times. Uh, so Cadman, one of the things that I find very refreshing about that company is they didn't care about this issue. Um, they were unapologetic about issuing abridged versions of books, which you know, most audio publishers avoid abridgment at all costs because that's just suddenly a scene of solo brow. Cadman wanted to bring in actors and put on music and make these recordings as entertaining as possible. And I did speak to one of the women who started it once, and she said, yeah, of course, uh, we wouldn't think of reading it straight. We wanted to make um, these re readings as entertaining as possible and to make our recordings stand out from the printed book. So they were competing with printed books and wanted to say, you know, why should you listen to it rather than read them? Well, because you can hear someone very talented do it, and you can hear special effects that you won't hear in your head if you're reading it silently to yourself. 
But I think it does become a much bigger debate later in the century when you start having commercial audiobook companies that deliberately try again to do what early blindness organizations did, and that was to align recorded books as closely as possible with printed ones. So then I think you do have a lot of publishers taking decisions to use a single narrator to read in a restrained or understated way, to not add sound effects, to not add sort of like, I don't know, smooth jazz in between chapters to, to, to mark transitions. And there is a lot of effort put into destigmatizing audiobooks as something that's seen as subliterary. Uh, one of the insults that stood out to me while doing this research was that audiobooks in the 1980s were sometimes referred to as Kentucky Fried Literature, a comparison to fast food, you know, saying it's it's just sort of quick and dirty, an unhealthy choice, as opposed to the reading print equivalent of eating your vegetables. It has to be said, I had an English teacher who frowned at the fact that I listened to some of my books on tape. And then when I found out that I was going blind, he went, oh, right. OK, well, well, that's OK then. <laughs> and it was, yeah, yeah I, I, I hadn't realised that the reason I preferred to listen to books on tape was because actually it was rather hard work to read them with my failing eyesight. I, I find that same reaction though when talking to people, that the debate instantly changes if you change the subject from, say, a sighted person who, if they are listening to a book, it's seen as uh, you know, a deliberate choice not to do reading the hard way, where the debate just takes on a much different tone if you talk about uh, in the context of disability and people who, um, in terms of accessibility, might be a, a better word there. Uh, and I'm always sort of surprised about this debate because, I mean, just as someone who was largely a print reader before, and I, I listen to audiobooks occasionally when I started this project, uh, but still, the majority of my reading was print. I mean, listening to a book is hard work. It, it took me a long time to kind of train my mind to pay attention to what was being said. And, I mean, really notice details so I wouldn't miss names and details like that. So I think anyone who can listen to a book or read it in print should get equal praise. Well, yeah, and it, it's impossible to mark up an audiobook, unlike a print copy for those of us who studied English. But that's by the by. As you say, one of the other big game changers was, of course, the introduction of tape in the 1970s and 80s. And books on tape, which grew out of a perceived need to counter the boredom of long car journeys. Yeah, it's probably a good equivalent to the earlier moment in the history of audiobooks where soldiers came back from the war and uh, were in search of a way to read books for themselves. Well, here we shift to commuters stuck in traffic on Los Angeles highways, you know, with nothing to do to sort of kill time. So they wanted to listen to books. Uh, you know, I think the radio options were very few back then. So books was just a, a much more appealing option. But most of the recordings available were just very short. I mean, they were often a bridge. You know, even companies like Cadman, who were very popular, were not doing sort of full-length recordings of, of books in most cases. Um, so these computers sort of wanted the opposite. They wanted uh, books to be as long as possible. I mean, they wanted, let's say, George Eliot's novels recorded, um, since that would be about 50 hours, you know, occupy a good amount of their time while they were on the road. But I think lots of people who were stuck in traffic sort of thought audiobooks would be a good idea at the time. But a man named Duval Hecht, who was living in California and one of those commuting to work every day and just bored out of his mind while he was driving, decided to actually start one of these companies. And he and his wife um, started the company small, making recordings in their living room where they would hire an actor from a, like a local acting school um, to do these recordings. And then gradually built up this company into a massive mail order company where readers from, I think, all over the country could reply to their advertisements, let's say, spotted in newspapers and get books on tape sent out to them by post um, at a much more affordable rate than was commonly the case at the time. And then they could listen to these tapes, um, read an entire book. I mean, it might be a set of eight to 10 tapes and then send them back when they were done. Mm. Of course, technology continued to develop and you take us through the development of CDs where you could fit an awful lot more onto a less bulky medium and, uh, and now downloads, of course. I mean, yes, we go back to some of the more sci-fi imaginings of Edison and those who first saw the phonograph in 1877 and imagined where it could go. But I wonder if anybody could have predicted just how much literature would be available to a global audience now. It is astonishing to me, I mean, how easily available 
you know, entire library of, of audiobooks is to us today. I mean, you can just walk around with a phone in your pocket. And I, mean, I, I think I have 200 audiobooks uh, on my phone right now. That's just unthinkable in, in, in previous eras. Um, and, you know, we're talking about contemporary audiobook history now. So this is, these are things I've experienced in my lifetime. I would flip tapes while driving a car and then later compact this. And I was an early adopter of internet technology. So I, um, in the early days of the internet, in the mid-90s, had little portable MP3 players where it was a real fiddle to download audio files from your computer onto these devices and then walk out and listen to about two hours worth of material before you had to turn around and go back and download some more because your player was out of space. So there was just a lot of labor involved that I think uh, people who start listening to audiobooks in more recent times might, might not appreciate. It's just so easy now to just sort of press a button and listen to whatever you want um, compared to the old days. And totally and utterly portable. You take us back to the early days of the Walkman, and my memory is that the tapes would get chewed as the batteries failed. And yet now you can take your smartphone with you in your pocket and you can get a good day and a half's listening, which is almost all of a Jane Austen novel. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm a, I'm a heavy consumer of these audiobooks too. Uh, it just would have been very difficult relying on physical libraries and you know, physical copies of tape cassettes and compact discs and so forth um, to read as much as, as I do now. Do you think that now the audiobook has become so much more universally enjoyed that some of that stigma is beginning to recede about whether it's a proper way of reading or not? Absolutely. Uh, so over sort of the, the five to 10 years that I was working on or promoting this book uh, on the history of audiobooks, I noticed a real sea change in attitudes. So, I mean, when I started doing my research on this project, and it must have been 2011, 2012, my colleagues sort of, they sort of raise eyebrows uh, at me or look at me like I was crazy for writing about such a sub-literary topic. And I remember even trying to sort of apply for grants to do the research for this project and you know, visit these archives. And some colleagues just refused to write letters supporting my application because they did not think it was an important topic. Within a few years, though, it, it just seemed like everyone was suddenly so much more open-minded to these books. I think particularly young people, so it might be a generation gap, but young people in particular are just sort of astounded that anyone ever had any perceptions of the audiobooks as, as being somehow lesser or inferior to printed books. So young people don't seem to have these hang-ups. And I think there's just been a real change in the sort of media environments in which we listen to these books as well, that... I think people are kind of rightly protective of books and their of their identities as readers. I mean, it's something that's very important to people, uh, as as I think it should be. And so initially, they felt like audiobooks were kind of a a media intruding on the book and a, a threat to the book. Whereas nowadays, audiobooks almost seem like one of the good guys, since we're sort of surrounded by TikTok videos and all sorts of media that just seem designed for short attention spans and just very much much more formidable competitors to literature. So I find that most people nowadays are just happy if someone has read a book in any format. And of course, the developments are continuing. You know, we are talking at the beginning of 2023. Apple has just announced that it's got artificial intelligence narrators who are reading books that might not otherwise have been published in audio. You selected Jim Dennison as the narrator for the untold story of the talking book. In 10 years' time... Do you think you would have been selecting a human narrator or do you think you might have relied on AI? In retrospect, I'm, I'm quite proud of the fact that I hired a human narrator. <laughs> there, there is a, um, a raging controversy in the audiobook industry right now over the use of computer-generated voices over human voices. I mean, there's, there's just a lot of labor issues that come up that are playing out right now. But it certainly does seem the future of audiobooks to me, or at least a big part of the, the future of audiobooks. Because even when I finished my book in 2016, and was looking ahead, I, mean, I was predicting that one day people would be able to choose the narrator of their dreams. And that could be a dead celebrity, for instance. Or if you didn't like a certain narrator, you have a much greater choice now. You could choose, let's say, a woman instead of a man, let's say, or someone whose accent matched up your own. If you don't like the American accent, you could choose another nationality, let's say. So I think all those will be possibilities. You might be listening to Orson Welles read an audiobook for you one day. That'll get easier and easier. So far, the voices, they're, they're not exact. They're not the equivalent to the human voices right now. 
And I mean, there's just such talent out there. It is tough for me to see a certain segment of audiobooks ever not being read by human narrators. But we should just keep in mind that a huge percentage of books you know, don't get any audio recording at all, in which case I think a computer-generated voice would be better than nothing. Um, there's lots of sort of genre fiction, like romance stories in particular, where these voices don't matter a tremendous amount. So a good enough voice would be fine for lots of readers. And then there are, you know, we were talking earlier about different reading styles and preferences of, of blind people in particular. Um, I mean, a lot of blind readers I, I, I speak to listen to audiobooks at uh, accelerated rates. I mean, two or three times the normal rate of speaking. So they are not that into, uh, I guess, the, the finer details of a speaking voice to begin with. In, in which case, again, if you're just reading a book for information, that cheap option of, say, a free narrator, th that might work for you. Yeah, I do think there probably is room for two streams of audiobook, one that is more straight reading and one that is more performative. And uh, yeah, it comes back to being offered choice, just as it did back in the 1920s and 30s. Well, Ian, one of the predictions uh, made early on, I think late 19th century, was that one day you'd be able to choose, uh, let's say, five or six different narrators reading, say, uh, a Tennyson poem or a short story. That that would be really exciting to me. That instead of talking about these kind of you know very dated controversies about does this count as real reading, we will take up much more interesting discussions about which reading is better, which uh, of these is more satisfying or uh, is richer in some ways. And those are just the type of debates I'd love to have. And currently, that's tough to do, just because having more than one recording of a book just seems like such a luxury when they are so expensive to make. Still, has all your research changed the way? that you read? Certainly. I mean, one is I'm a real champion of audiobooks now, whereas I did see it as kind of a casual part of my reading, something I, I largely did when I wasn't able to read print. That has changed dramatically in the sense that there are a lot of books that I prefer to read in audible formats. It's, so I, I appreciate aspects of hearing books in a way that I just didn't really think about that much in my previous life. Um, so I'm just much more conscious of the audiobook as kind of an independent art form in its own right. So there definitely are ties to the printed book, but it's also its own form of entertainment, one I think that should be celebrated uh, at every opportunity. So so that's the main way. Uh, and then there have been little ways as well. I mean, one sense is uh, I used to just sort of, I guess, be indiscriminate about what I listened to. I mean, now I will pay a premium to listen to a very talented narrator. Um, I used to think highly of my own skills as a reader since you know I'm an English professor and I read books for a living, but I've just been humbled by working with so many highly skilled voice actors out there who read books better than I will ever be able to do. And so in many ways, it is a privilege that I am willing to pay a premium for to hear these pros do their job rather than try, try to do it in an amateurish way on my own. I, I think reading is kind of unique. I mean, we would never say you should let's say, read a film script instead of watching the actual movie version of it, or that you would read a musical score rather than listening to the symphony being played uh, aloud. But with books, we do do that. You know, we say you should convert those words into sound for yourself rather than bringing in a more talented mediator for that. Matthew Rubri, thank you so much for taking us deeper into the untold story of the talking book. And before I let you go... I think we should go through the three audiobooks of your life after this short break. Catch up with this and every episode of My Life in Books by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books. More from Red Sale and his guest in a moment. Back to the closing track of this two-episode special with Professor Matthew Rubri. Matt, we've been talking about all aspects of audiobooks, so I was wondering if you could share three memorable audiobooks that you've come across during the course of your research. We've covered some of the milestones in the history of audiobooks, so I would encourage everyone to just go listen to these early recordings out of curiosity and because some of them are fantastic. So we mentioned Tennyson's Charge of the Light Brigade, for instance, a recording from 1890. We talked about Dylan Thomas's A Child's Christmas in Wales. And another recording that comes to mind is Douglas Adams's 
The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is often on these sort of best audiobooks of all time lists. Um, I thought of just three audiobooks that had a, a personal impact on me that I thought worth sharing with your audience. The first one is Cormac McCarthy's The Road. This is a novel from 2006. I heard a commercial edition. I think it was uh, Tom Steck-Schulte was the narrator. For anyone who isn't familiar with this book, it's one of the post-apocalyptic novels that seemed really popular in the last decade or two. I can't imagine why. Uh, this one is a novel describing a father and son's journey across the U.S. after some type of catastrophe has happened. So it's kind of a really spare and often harrowing novel. And we, we've obviously got plenty of real-life catastrophes to deal with right now. So I wouldn't push this on your audience as needing imagined ones to add to our woes, except that this book had a real impact on me um, while I was listening to it because it was just so vivid that I had to stop what I was doing and concentrate, give my full attention to this book. As we've sort of been talking about, audiobooks are often thought about as a, a form of secondary entertainment, something that you do while you're you know, exercising in the gym or um, doing the dishes or something like that. And that was how I was kind of listening to this book. I was on my bicycle at the time. But I had to pull over, sit on a bench, and just listen to one of the scenes because I couldn't concentrate on anything else. So this, to me, is just a good example of how your reading can be vivid in any format. And um, just like a printed book can transport us someplace else, and the same with recorded books, uh, which will be no surprise to your audience. But you know, audiobooks that often get sort of a bad reputation as being um, a form of distracted listening... That's certainly not the case in many of the books I've listened to. So this is just a vivid example, but I've had lots of books since then where um, I listen to them and just devote my entire attention to them. Any other real standouts? Yeah. Um, another, again, sort of, I think, turning point just in my own history of listening was Frank McCourt's Angela's Ashes from, uh, I think it was 1996. Um, this is a memoir about growing up in Ireland and America during the Great Depression. It's a very funny and moving book. Uh, but I mentioned it here just because this was one of those recordings that just really brought home for me how much better a recorded book can be than the printed version in some cases. And that's often the case with uh, memoirs or autobiographies in which the author is reading their own book. I mean, some authors can be dreadful readers. Uh, I, th I think we need to acknowledge that. But in memoirs, I mean, when authors are reading very personal stories that they've written, uh, sometimes that voice can make all the difference. So I can just think of countless examples where you know, hearing, let's say, um, an accent of a particular nationality makes a huge difference. So in this case, it was that Irish accent that makes the spoken word recording way better than print. And I almost always listen to life writing of this sort rather than reading it in print these days because it's one of the affordances of audiobooks. I mean, something that sonic recordings can do that printed books can't. Yeah, nobody else could read Michelle Obama's autobiography. It just wouldn't sound right, would it? Yeah, and, and, and her husband's as well. I mean, they're just mm. both great recordings that I think are better to listen to. And one final book to send us away in search of? Okay, so I, I just chose something experimental for this last one to send you off with. Um, this is a very recent book, um, Brett Easton Ellis's The Shards. So it was published in print this month, I should say, because I listened to it a few years ago when Ellis read his manuscript allowed on his podcast and like serialized installments over a year, just as a way of entertaining his listeners during the pandemic. Uh, but it was very exciting for me because I'd never been a huge fan of this author. Um, I think he's best known for American Psycho, writes a lot about serial killers and stuff. And he's also known for his pop culture trivia knowledge from the 1980s. But hearing him read this book aloud through his podcast was so exciting for me because it kind of gave me a glimpse of how audiobooks could kind of blur into podcasts at some point, and what podcasts could do that audiobooks couldn't. So in this case, um, Ellis would begin each episode, I think he brought him out every couple weeks, with a short monologue in which he'd talk about the material he'd written for that week and what it was about, how it related to his life and stuff. And in between, he'd heard from readers, so he'd often respond to them and say, oh, someone pointed out that I got this song title wrong or something like that. And it got even more exciting as the year went on because even though this is kind of a outlandish tale about a serial killer, he kept insisting it was a real-life tale that like, really happened to him. And, you know, we had no way of knowing at this point. Uh, but people in between these installments would try to investigate, figure out whether it was actually fiction or not, or some curious hybrid of the two. And then he would respond to readers and say, 
you know, some of you raised this point, but let me explain why um, you're mistaken on this. So I loved it. It added this whole dimension to the reading process that you wouldn't get in the printed book or the audiobook. And now the printed book has come out. I think it just stripped away all of that frame that the podcast provided. I think the audiobook will just be reading the narrative straight. It won't have any of this kind of suspense or these kind of personal stories that are being told before the reading starts. So I love that because it sort of gave me a glimpse of how authors could be creative in the future and maybe use podcasts to sort of add supplementary material to these books, whether it's kind of opening monologues or some um, additional material. It was sort of the way that DVDs often have like director's versions where for fans, they've got all sorts of extra material that are meant to enhance the experience in some way. So I hope other authors will follow Ellis's lead and bring out podcast novels of their own. Well, that's a great way to end the audiobook finally leading the way rather than playing catch up with print, which it did do for so many decades. Professor Matthew Ribery, thank you so much for giving us both sides of the audiobook talking book story and for spending two episodes just leading us through what is a fascinating history that is going full throttle into the 21st century. It's been a pleasure. That's it for part two of this special edition of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Matthew Rubri, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. Sean and I are already busy with the next episode of My Life in Books, but if you missed part one of this Talking Books special or want to catch up with any of the episodes in this or the previous season of My Life in Books, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this program by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. Hi, I'm Stephen Scott. Join me every day for Double Tap. It's a show where we occasionally talk about technology for blind and partially sighted people. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.